Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Nick Wyness, Head of Marketing and Engagement at the Tank Museum. Nick developed a genius strategy to grow audiences and communities online, which has been phenomenally successful. Listen along to hear how the Tank Museum earned around 25% of a total 6 million turnover from online sources. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Nick, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome to Skip the Queue. Thank you very much for having me. As ever, I'm going to start with some icebreakers, though, and I've got a topical one for you. Okay. Um, so last week, the BBC reported that a visitor had broken Jeff Koons' iconic balloon dog sculpture. I know this is awful, isn't it? I'm like, <laughs> um, at a high-end art fair in Miami. I want to know, have you ever been told off by security for touching a museum exhibit that you weren't supposed to touch? Oh, that's that's a good one. Actually, I... Obviously, you know, work at the Tank Museum. That's why we're, what we're talking about. But I first visited the Tank Museum when I was about eight years old and I was a Cub Scout. And um, this was obviously quite a long time ago, different decade, probably the 80s. And they used to have a little arcade machine in there. I know it's kind of weird, like uh, uh, arcade machines in a museum, but they used to have one of those little kind of like penny pushers. Oh, yeah, I love those. Yeah, I mean it's a hell of a way to lose money um but but basically and that's what happened we were getting a bit frustrated with this thing you know it kind of like hangs over the edge doesn't it a really sort of um tempting way so my friend and i we couldn't resist giving it a little bit of encouragement a little bit of a rock and this guy came out and he told us off and when i started working at the tank museum in 2004 i met the same guy how funny was that Wow. Well, I mean, one, that's lovely. Very high rate of, of retention of, of staff at the Tank Museum. So that's a plus. Oh, my God. Did he actually recognise you? No, thankfully not. Otherwise, okay. you know, things could have got different. But I, I definitely rec- rec- recognise him, that kind of ferocious look in his eye. <laughs> that is a brilliant story. Um, I, My nan, I, just while we're on the subject of penny machines, because I, I really like those penny machines. They are a very good way of losing a, a load of money. But I only go for the 2p ones, right? And then uh-huh. it doesn't feel as bad. High roller. High roller, yeah. <laughs> my, my nan had a bit of an obsession with those and the grabber machine. So they had a caravan <laughs> um, in Walton on the Naze. And she used to spend a lot of time in the, on the old penny penny slot machines in in her day. And I reckon that she might have had a little bit of a, a nudge of some of those because she used to win a lot. And you don't win that much on them, do you? You, I don't, reckon, you don't. I reckon she did a little hit bash, Grandma. I think everyone everyone must do that from time to time. How <laughs> could you not? It's so tempting. But I think the trouble is if you go too far, a little alarm goes off and a man comes out and tells you off. <laughs> Especially at the Tank Museum. Especially at the Tank Museum. Oh, that is excellent. Thank you for sharing that story. Right, okay, uh, next one. I was going to ask you what your favourite tank is, but I think that would be quite boring. What? like choosing a favourite child. You can't do that. No, I know. Unless you just have one and then it's easy. Um, (laughs) What one thing would you make a law that isn't already? Well, I think it should be law that everyone should visit the Tank Museum more than once (laughs) a month. More than once a month. There you go. More than once a month. That's a lot of tanks. <laughs> okay, good one. All right, last one. I'm always intrigued by this. I'm, I think I'm going to start making this a regular question. I want to know if mm. you now, or if you did when you were younger, if you had a collection of something. Um, I've never really been one to collect things. I'm a bit sort of rubbish and a bit lazy. Like I, I get really into it, and then I'll kind of lose interest. And what I do, I used to collect stickers and that kind of thing. I remember my sister used to collect key rings, but 
Yeah, I'm not much of a collector, but I know you collect. Is it rubbers? You oh, you've done your research. Bizarrely, it was one of the first things you told me about yourself when we first met. Um, when we grew up at that, that Edinburgh uh, conference. <laughs> I thought it was an, an interesting thing to go in with early, but you did it. Uh, and I respect that. So, I, I mean, I'm sure we have a tank museum rubber, and I kind of feel that I should maybe send you one. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, please. The collection. It might yes, even be tank shaped. Um, wow. Also, just for anyone that does meet me in the future, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry that that is what my start one of my starting lines is hey I've got a, an 80s rubber collection excellent well done me um okay let's move on to your unpopular opinion Nick okay so I, I thought long and hard about this because you know I have many many unpopular opinions so I'm going to go with this one and that is I do not like Twitter I can't stand Twitter which is quite ironic given what we're going to be talking about I know the shock the despondency on your face but hear me out I've got three reasons why I really don't like Twitter so the first reason is that Twitter, in my opinion, just seems to bring out the absolute worst in people. It's kind of like golf. If you've been on a golf course and a normally perfectly rational person can just turn into this kind of like snarling, club snapping. Oh, main... yeah. Yeah. You've met and... you've met my husband. Really. <laughs> There's plenty like him. There's plenty like him. Um, I'm probably one of them myself, which is why I don't play golf. Um, but yeah, it just kind of, I don't know, like on Twitter, you can see normal people, what appear to be at first sight normal people anyway, kind of turn into, you know, vacuous narcissists all trying to show how clever they are or how virtuous they are or how much funnier they are than the other guy. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a playground one-upmanship, but it's quite derogatory and quite negative as well, isn't it, really? It's, it's all sort of a bit sort of unpleasant. I'm just amazed there are so many people out there who are willing to spend time arguing with people they've never met on the internet. Surely <laughs> there has to be more to life. But the second reason is that, and this is the one which has always probably wound me up the most, is that, you know, lazy journalists mistaking what happens on Twitter for actual news or uh, worse, for actual public opinion when it's actually neither. And so the fact that journalists do that is, is it kind of gives um all of this rubbish a bigger platform and gives it greater credibility than i think some of it actually deserves but the third reason i dislike twitter and there are many reasons why i think we have an increasingly polarized society but twitter is definitely not helping and i i really sort of you know one of those general things that we worry about is how you what you see on twitter being kind of sort of manifested in just the greater public discourse it's just like we've forgotten how to have a disagreement respectively respectfully do you know what i mean mm. nobody can have an argument these days without you know having to sort of play the man or you know kind of you know take the other person out in on every level there's no well i respectfully agree with your opinion but i you know will agree to disagree there's none of that on twitter really is there everyone's basically hacking each other um hacking the other person to death verbally until somebody gets bored and has to get off the bus or, or something so for those three reasons yeah I, and i hate all that abuse of public figures as well whether it's sort of just general hate or misogyny or racism all that kind of stuff and you just think none of these people well hopefully none of these people would would have the courage to say the things that they'd say on twitter to another person's face and i always think that you know you should never say something in writing on twitter or on social media that you would wouldn't want to say to their face because you know you've got to accept the consequences right of, of yeah. the things that you say and i think people hide behind the anonymity of the internet i just don't think i don't think that's healthy gosh that was quite a moralistic oh, 
a moralistic rant, but my God, do I feel better. So it much. really was, but wow, what a <laughs> great one. And I really love how in-depth you went with your unpopular opinion. Um, I was nodding along there towards the end because I think that point three, like there is a dark side to Twitter and I'm going to, I'm I was agreeing with you on point three. I like Twitter and I enjoy it, but I think that you are, you are, I'm probably in my lovely, happy, safe, kind of comfortable bubble there because I follow really nice people and I engage with lovely people. And, mm-hmm. and actually, there is a, quite a big kind of attractions and heritage and cultural community mm-hmm. on Twitter that I feel quite part of. So that yeah. all feels very nice. But I absolutely agree with you that there is a dark and destructive side of it, which isn't healthy for anybody to be involved yeah. in. I respectfully disagree with your opinion. There you go. You see, it is possible. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're still friends, Nick. You know, you're still going to send me a rubber. I'm still going to start our conversations in strange and in, in weird ways whenever we see each other. It's, it's all, all good. <laughs> um, let me know, listeners, what you think about uh, Nick's unpopular opinion. I know a lot of you um, talk to me on Twitter. So it'd be interesting to hear if you agree. I think you probably agree with both of us. Good place, bad place. Yeah, uh, it brings out it, good yeah. in some, bad in some. Absolutely. I mean, sure, if you, you know, just tweet me. Tweet Nick. <laughs> oh, God, please go and tweet Nick. Go and tweet him. Make <laughs> him respond on the platform that he, <laughs> he finds appalling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll just kind of go go straight for the abuse. <laughs> Great. OK, Nick, tell us you, you work at the Tank Museum. Tell us about your role there and what you do. Okay, so I, um, as you've heard, my association with the Tank Museum goes back an awfully long way from uh, trying to rob arcade machines and to when I first became a paid member of staff, which was in 2004, uh, which was a, a very long time ago, almost 20 years, which is absolutely wow. terrible. So I first started working there as the PR officer, and this was at the beginning of a very transformational period for the Tank Museum. Um, you know, we were applying for heritage lottery funding. There was this big redevelopment project in the offing. And so it was very exciting. It was a very exciting time. And it was great to see the organization go through this kind of great arc of transformation, which was supported by, you know, public money. Um, But what was particularly good about that is it was really successful. And we achieved with that heritage lottery funding all of the things that we said we were going to do. So we were bringing more people in, really making the subject a lot more accessible to to a wider audience all of those things absolutely fantastic so um it's been a big part of my career i did leave the tank museum back in 2012 2013 and i went to work at a very uh very well-established visitor attraction in another location but i missed i missed my tanks i missed oh. my tanks and the first world war centenaries were coming up as well and i am quite into my military history so i the opportunity um came to go back to the tank museum in a, in a very different role a much more senior role and i took that opportunity back in 2016 and i haven't looked back so my role at the tank museum my job title is the head of uh, marketing and engagement which means i'm head of marketing and engaging things um but in in english what that means is obviously i'm responsible for ensuring that the visitors show up uh, so you know the tank museum is a medium-sized visitor attraction we have about 200,000 visitors a year when there isn't a, a pandemic um, we have a portfolio of special events. Our big fundraising event every year is Tank Fest, which if you haven't been, you absolutely must. Top of my list. Uh, top of the, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I'm, although I'm surprised you haven't been already. I haven't been to the Tank Museum. Well, you'd have the rubber if you did, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> it's not in my collection. There you go. We'll have to put that right. So that's that's the Tank Museum. I'm yeah, responsible for making sure the visitors show up. 
Uh, and all of that kind of external communication, whether that's stakeholder communications, you know, the public relations activity, the media relations activity, and the social media activity, and the e-commerce activity. And a big part of what I've been doing, particularly since I returned, was basically building up these online audiences and building this online community and latterly of sort of successfully monetizing that really. And what we've done is create an entirely almost distinct business from, if you like, our visitor on-site income. We've created this separate sort of almost separate um, money-making enterprise, which is all about our online audiences and our online followers and supporters. This is what I want to talk about today, Nick, because I have heard Nick talk about this. At, well, the last time I heard you speak was at, up in Scotland at the at the Tourism Associations Conference, which was incredible. What you've achieved is pretty phenomenal, I have to say, and I, and just so incredibly impressive. And I'm so glad that you've been able to come on and share it with our listeners today. So I think I, I just want to I'm not sure if I've got the date right, but was it in 2020 that you started to develop this strategy or was it? Because it, it was pre-pandemic. It was pre-pandemic, yeah. So it's it's kind of what I've been working on since since I came back in 2016. Right, okay. But I wouldn't say what I started working on is where we've ended up. So what we started doing, it was all about basically building up these online audiences. And it was all really about, if I, if I just wind back a bit, one of the, the problems with the Tank Museum, I say problems, I mean, it's a fantastic location being in Dorset as we are. But we are absolutely in the middle of nowhere. We are in a tiny garrison village of Bovington. The nearest big town is like Bournemouth. That's an hour away by car. So we are absolutely in the middle of nowhere. If it wasn't for the fact that Doris, Dorset sorry, was a successful domestic tourist destination, there's no way the Tank Museum could have survived at all, really. Because, you know, lots of people come um, to Dorset on holiday. You know, August has always been our busiest month, for example. So the fact we're out there in the middle of nowhere means we have a real sort of challenge to get people's attention and so this whole strategy came up kind of came out of our sort of requirement and our our desire to just kind of let people know we existed and you know the objective that I set myself was we just needed to be more famous so everything we did was about making the tank museum more famous that was it that was the key objective for the whole strategy love it that was that was literally it be more famous because if people don't know you exist they're not going to come and visit you and so, like I say, I'm kind of um, from a from the sort of more PR end of the, of the marketing spectrum. Uh, I did like a journalism degree, and I've always been really interested in storytelling. And the Tank Museum is, as you can imagine, we tell stories and we tell some amazing stories. And you know, warfare is one of those bits of history where you get to see the very best in humanity, but you also get to see the very worst. And so, you know, some of the stories we deal with are just absolutely fascinating. You know, sometimes there's goodies, there's baddies, and and you know, there's loss and love and all of that kind of thing, really, really good story. So it's always been, in my view, the case that storytelling, PR, those kind of traditional ways of reaching an audience with stories was going to be the way that we're going to achieve that cut through of making the Tank Museum more famous, making our objects speak for themselves, if you like, and the stories that we tell. And so the strategy really grew out of that PR strategy. And when 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 social media kind of came around and we started to, to take things like Facebook um, more seriously back in, I don't know, 2010 or something like that it was about using social media as a, as a as a means to reach people without the filter of like the media if you like you know there were specialist magazines and there were national newspapers that we could get the occasional story in but you know it'd always be heavily heavily edited to be more in their voice but social media allowed us to sort of speak with our own voice and um you know get our stories out directly unfiltered to a much bigger audience and 
we started to see that audience online grow. Uh, and basically what we were doing at that point was very much alongside what we were doing offline, as it were. And we started to see that audience grow. And as it grew, it started to become clear that actually the majority of people that we were actually hitting with this weren't British, as in they weren't resident in the UK. And so they were therefore quite unlikely to be able to visit the tank museum. And that in itself did pose a bit of a kind of a intellectual dilemma, really, because it's like if you're putting all that time and effort into reaching people, you want them to visit. But if they're not actually going to visit, well, what's the point of actually reaching them then? You're just kind of making a lot of noise and it's it's, it's unsustainable. Um, and so that whole monetization piece came out of this sort of really, I think, you know, for me being challenged by the, the trustees of the tank museum to say, well, this has got to pay for itself somehow. How are you going to do it? And if you don't do it, you've got to stop. And so I like a challenge, so I got stuck in. <laughs> and you really got stuck in. So I love this. So you you achieved your objective, right? So you go, we go back to 2016. You, you set mm. the objective for Be More Famous. You drive that objective and you achieve it over the next few years. But actually, in achieving that objective, it's not bringing any more revenue to the organisation right. because your audience is... Like like a lot of PR activity, it can be quite difficult to sort of measure and it can be quite difficult to track that back to source. So I think the big change, change for us came when we introduced YouTube to our sort of social media marketing mix. And again, you know, we've got a very visual subject matter. Tanks are big objects and they move so they look good on camera. And I think the, one of the I, I launched the YouTube channel originally. I don't know, it must have been about 2010. I had I bought a little a little rubbishy sort of digital camera. And basically, for me, the, the idea of making videos for YouTube was I just had this idea of doing like visual press releases, basically, because, you know, it, it might make them a bit more interesting. And we were starting to see at that point, you know, other people were coming to the tank museum with camcorders and making little videos. And, that, you know, they were doing quite well. So we thought there was clearly a bit of potential in this. Uh, and then as time went on and we kind of introduced what is our sort of flagship YouTube series, which is the tank chats, where we have one of our experts literally standing in front of a tank, just talking about that object, the history of that object, how it was developed, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's, you know, that's what really set our YouTube channel off was that there was quite, you know, YouTube is quite labor intensive. You know, you need to have the kit, you need to have the people to make the films, then they need to have spend time editing those things as well. So I think at that point, you know, we were getting really, really great views, really, really great engagement. But the reality was, is what, you know, we're a charity. We have to be careful how we spend our money. We're not rich. We're in, like say, we're in the middle of nowhere. This all has to go back to some kind of important, you know, box ticking objective. And, and, you know, that has to be sort of financial in some way or other. We have to make sure it's washing its face. And whilst we could see as the YouTube channel started to grow, you know, sort of 2014, 2015, we, we could see that we were starting to see more international visitors, for example, rocking up at our special events like Tankfest. And we could see that our experts that we were putting in front of the camera were bizarrely starting to get like people coming up and asking for autographs, which is, you know, kind of adorable in many ways. <laughs> so we could see that, but you can't really put a figure on that. So like I say, like a lot of PR activity, it's just really difficult to quantify in that way. And we've got a very, you know, switched on um, group of trustees and they were basically challenging to say, well, you know, put value on this. And it's very difficult unless mm. you find a, another way of kind of, you know, literally making it clear how it's performing for you. OK, so we get to that point and trustees challenge you. What did you then start to do and how did you start to develop the monetization strategy that you're that you've 
mm. deep put in place. Yeah, so there was this trusty meeting and, you know, I was very pleased with these massive numbers because, you know, it's all about, you know, on social media, the bigger the numbers, the more successful you are. So I think we were all feeling quite um, quite pleased with ourselves about that and say, look at all these people in America watching us. You know, people who have never heard of the Tank Museum have now heard of the Tank Museum. Isn't that great? And in a way it is great. But, you know, they were, they were absolutely right to sort of say, well, hang on a minute. Because actually that intervention has just led to things being better, really. And that's what you want from your trustees, isn't it? But at the time, it probably felt like a, a, a little <laughs> a little bit deflating. Uh, yeah, because my first thought was, goodness me, how on earth are we going to do this? Because there wasn't, there's no model in our sector for doing this at all. And normally, you know, if, if you're short of a good idea or two, there's plenty of other people in our sector, bigger organisations, more established museums, you can just help yourself to an idea from really or talk to them and say well how have you done it and you know what what ideas can we basically steal and and, and reform but this one there was nothing so it was a real challenge but actually that's what made it fun in a way and so all i did is because you know i'm i was then and i still am now a bit of a youtube addict so i definitely think i probably watch more youtube than netflix and certainly much more than terrestrial television i just like the variety and the randomness of the things you can see and my son who's only eight years old is much to my disappointment equally addicted to <laughs> watches he spends hours watching people main, play minecraft and i just what is that about how is that enjoyable and they're all quite irritating as well but that's by the by <laughs> this isn't a therapy session i must remind myself <laughs> um, it feels like it. get it all out get it, all it does out. right anyway back to monetization so yeah so so what i did is i had a look at youtubers and, and how they were making a living effectively from just running a youtube channel and you know that became a thing if you like sort of 2012 2013 2014 and it was just literally a case of saying, right, how are they making their money? And identified there was four key ways in which they were making their money. The first thing was through um, advertising revenue. So when you are on YouTube and you're playing your videos, Google basically puts ads at the beginning of those videos. And I'm sure you've seen them. I'm sure you've skipped many of them as well. And basically, they do operate a revenue share um, scheme with their creators. So you basically get a percentage of every ad that, that's played. So the second thing is... Uh, memberships so um patreon had just launched at that time and patreon is like an online modern membership um, a platform which allows you to fac facilitate an online modern membership scheme and it's very closely um, linked to youtube at that time youtube kind of endorsed it and a lot of youtubers were using it as well as a means to provide sort of tiered memberships where people could give you know monthly micro donations whether it was one dollar a month three dollars a month five dollars a month or more uh, in exchange for a, yeah, a tiered set of benefits whether that's additional access to the uh, creator uh, um, you know early access that sort of thing the third way was through sponsorships and i'm sure we've all seen youtube videos where at the beginning of the video no matter what it's about there might be somebody who's promoting a product whether that's like a vpn service or a pair of gaming headphones or, or or whatnot and the uh, final way was merchandise sales and you know even people with modest merchant um youtube channels will be using um printly or or something like that to print their own t-shirts with their like channel uh, logo on it so basically using those four methods that's how we sort of built the strategy around kind of making it happen um, and ad revenue is all about the more views you get the more ads get served to your uh, your content and the more money you can make so to give you an example last year 
uh, we had about 22 million views and we earned 90,000 pounds from ads. And that's oh, quite, it's not an immaterial sum of money. It's, um, you know, it's completely passive as well. Once it's out there, you don't have to do anything apart from just kind of take the, uh, take the payment every month. And the other thing about that that was really interesting to us as well was that what we saw is that the overseas audience, particularly the American-based viewers, were actually a lot more lucrative than the UK-based viewers. So last year, about 30% of our viewers were based in the USA, and basically 45% of our total ad revenue originated from those American viewers because the ad market is much more developed on YouTube in the USA than it is in the UK. So the UK viewers contributed just 20% of our total views, which is, of course, a lot lower as a proportion um, than the USA, but just 23% of our ad revenue. So you can see it was actually a benefit all of a sudden to having these American-based viewers. Yeah. And you can see how, you know, in the future, it might be beneficial for us to actually aim our content a little bit more at the American audience for that for that very reason. Sure. Is... Gosh, that's fascinating. I can't I can't believe the numbers on that as well for it for, for passive income. That's incredible. Yeah, and that's from what you can earn, you know, that's that's not particularly stellar either. I have to say, you know, there are there are people who do much more kind of commercial content than we do because ours is very much educational, who would probably do a lot better than that. Like the guys who make those Minecraft videos that my son watches are probably absolutely coining it in. <laughs> so it really makes you uh question your life choices doesn't it really yeah it does yeah so yeah and then we launched our patreon and again that was just a case of setting up the platform uh and then signposting it in all of our videos basically saying you know if you want to support the town ta- I mean, it's easy for us we're a charity so if you like the ask is a lot more straightforward you know support our work help us keep the channel going uh we were able to eventually fund an internship using the earnings from patreon it built up such i think it was just over twenty thousand pounds after the first couple of years so we uh, went to our local arts university and brought in a graduate placement who had just graduated from the film studies course to help us make more content so it became sort of beautifully self-fulfilling oh that's wonderful that you could do that as well yeah and it was all funded by the patreons and then, yeah, we, um, we we work with partners to generate sponsorship income. I think because we're a charity and because we're a museum, you know, we're not going to just accept any old sponsorship opportunity that wanders by. We have to be a bit sort of careful about our brand and, you know, who we'll work with and, and that sort of thing. But we're already working with a video games company called Wargaming. They make a video game called World of Tanks, which I'm sure you're an avid player of yourself. <laughs> and I needn't introduce it any further. <laughs> Um, but basically, it's, it's it's one of those massively multiplayer, it's free to play online. And basically, what you do is you kind of drive around in a tank and you sort of shoot at other people who are driving around online in, in their tank, played by literally millions of people worldwide. And they're already sponsoring like exhibitions and events at the Tank Museum. So it wasn't a really a big leap for them to start sponsoring our online content as well. And a really good example of how they're sort of support and sponsorship for our co- online content on our YouTube channel in particular could be found in 2020 during the pandemic, as I'm sure you can remember all too well. We weren't able that summer to hold our Tankfest event because obviously everything was shut down, which left us with a real big problem because, of course, Tankfest is our biggest fundraising event of the year. So we were able to use our YouTube channel and a bunch of edited footage to bring a Tankfest 2020 live stream to the internet with World of Tanks' financial support. So they basically gave us the sponsorship to kind of bring in the technology to, you know, live stream this this stuff that we'd edited together, which was sort of live hosted. 
and create a live stream. And, you know, that, that video did really well. It's had over a million views and still growing now, which is quite remarkable. From that live stream gained £50,000 worth of additional donations from the viewer base. And it led to an additional £20,000 of sales in our online shop that weekend as well. So, you know, it was staggeringly successful for us. But we wouldn't have been able to do it without World of Tanks' support. Ah, oh, that is an amazing achievement. So just thinking about what you said about the pandemic there and, and not being able to do certain things because mm. of it, but then being able to do this quite transformative project. Mm. Did, did the pandemic speed up some of the things that you were going to do or were these things kind of naturally in progress anyway as the pandemic hit? I think we were we were lucky in the sense that a lot of this stuff was just starting to get rolling when the pandemic hit. The fact it existed when the pandemic hit, um, no question about it. I think it saved jobs at the time, Museum. No question about it. And I think that's really that's a really good news story, isn't it? At the end of the day, and um, we were already in a place where we built these really big online audiences into a sort of a loyal community of almost advocates. And so when we were asking them for help, they were happy to support us. You know, so you know we saw an increase in our patronage um, during the uh, during the pandemic pandemic we saw an increase in ad revenue as well because across the board more people had more time to sit and watch youtube videos <laughs> um and obviously yeah we worked with um, world of tanks on that occasion to do this kind of big set piece uh live stream um special event which which um yielded you know great results but probably for us the most important thing and the, the biggest chunk of our online um income comes from e-commerce and so the fact that when the pandemic hit, we actually had the time for the first time ever to really focus in on e-commerce and make it work, you know, get it sorted out, get the website sorted out, sort out our logistics. And yeah, I mean, in 2019, we took £120,000 in our online shop, which we were quite happy with. In 2020, we took £1.2 million. Oh, wow. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we wouldn't have been able to take that if we hadn't already built this enormous online audience organically. So sure, we were using, you know, we were advertising the products and that kind of stuff online during during 2020. But the fact is, is that we kind of went in from a sort of a, a running start because the, the audience was there. You know, the product selection was there. We, we knew what we were doing and what we wanted to achieve. We just actually had time to get on with it. And actually, there's nothing like a, a crisis of that sort to really focus the mind and for everyone to be pulling out the stops. It was a fantastic team effort. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing what you can achieve when you're under that kind of pressure. And you've got nothing to lose, right? There really is. No, there's no barriers there. You've got absolutely nothing to lose by doing yeah, it. Nothing else to interfere with, the, with it. <laughs> there's no people. We don't, we don't have to worry about them. <laughs> so was that a one off or has that continued since, you know, this big increase in your online sales? So I think for us, that was that was always the concern, wasn't it? And, and I'm sure a lot of you know e-commerce, of course, are a massive boom because there was literally nothing to do all day apart from watch YouTube and buy stuff on the internet. Um, so we were obviously worried that, you know, how will things be in 2021? Is this just a blip? Is this just a bit of an anomaly? So we did 1.2 million in, in, in 2020. In 2021, we did same, I think 2.1 million again. So we were like, well, that's interesting, but it's been a funny year. You know, there's still lots of COVID hangover. We were locked down at the beginning of the year. So for us, 2022, the year just gone, was a real test for us. It was, you know, going to, this was going to tell us whether or not we'd managed to create sustainable growth. And actually last year we did 1.4 million. So it was a huge, you know, a huge effort. You know, we had to work really, really hard for it. 
but we're far better set up for that. You know, we, we've increased the size of the team to cope with this. But actually, what we've shown is that we've got some really good foundations here and some really good foundations for future growth as well. So it wasn't just, I mean, that was the concern. It could have all fallen away last year and we would have been sort of sat wondering what we were going to do with all these people who were sat on their hands. But fortunately, um, yeah, it's it, so far at least, knock on wood, has shown to be holding up. And is that the same with uh, with some of the other things as well? So is that the same with um, like your YouTube views and has everything stayed the same or, st- or, or increased since then? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that that was for us. I think the big thing in 2022 was about basically kind of stepping back and letting your hands off and going, right, is this, is this, is this still, is it still there? Is it, is it still, is it still happening? So we didn't set like massively ambitious targets for 2022. It was all just about, you know, is it okay? Um, but yeah, we, we still continued, you know, we had, I think, 22 million views last year, which was, you know, 2 million more than the, the one before. The membership income was, I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was, £2,000 more than it was the previous year. So, you know, what we saw is a lot of people who signed up to support us during the pandemic when the pandemic was over kind of fell away, but that's mm-hmm. fine. We also know that people have been hit by the sort of, you know, the kind of the ups and upheaval in, in financial and the financial uncertainty. So we've certainly, you know, lost a few, but we've had to work hard to, to gain a few as well. And, you know, our sponsors, um, Wargaming, have sort of stuck by us as well. And the e-commerce, as I've, as I've just said, has, has continued to work really well. You know, we had an incredibly strong Christmas season. And we've continued to do some of the things that we started doing in 2020 as well, like these self-published books. You know, we've got the audience. We can sell direct to them. So, you know, what we do is we'll take a book that's out of print that we've got the rights to. You know, we know we can be relatively comfortable that we'll be able to shift three or 4,000 of those based on the fact that, you know, we've got this really loyal audience in a real niche. We don't have a great deal of competition for that niche. Uh, and those have been really good for us as well. Wow. Really good things to drive sales and bring in the customers. Yeah. Are your trustees happy? That's what I want to know. Are they happy? They're never <laughs> happy. And, you know, I don't want them to be happy, you know, because if they're happy, that just makes life easier. They're always pushing us to try new things and, and just try and push it a little, a little bit further. But, you know, that's why I believe this happy team is very successful. You know, get the finger in the back. Just you know, you you can't get comfortable. You can't get complacent, and that's that's the way I like it. That's why I like working in the tangies. Yes, that's a good place to be, isn't it? Where you're always challenged, so there's always more that you can do. Um, you said earlier about um, the, the the attraction sector is one that is incredibly supportive of each other, and mm-hmm. you you mentioned earlier that there's normally a model or someone's done what you're trying to achieve, and you can often go and ask people. But in this case, you are the model. Right. You you right. have developed the model. So mm. what would be your tips for other museums that are looking to implement a really similar strategy to this? Ooh, that's a good question. I guess part of the issue is we never really set out to implement the model. It kind of just awkwardly fell in this way. But, you know, you, you, you I'm always looking at what um, other whether it's attractions or museums in particular, really, are doing in this space and how they're trying to do it. And I often wonder why there are much bigger, more established organisations than ours that aren't doing better than us. And I kind of feel like they arguably could be. I do think there's an issue with that I have met at Tammy Zoom because I've always had a lot of support from particularly, you know, my director, who's just kind of let me get on with it. And it's a bit of a smaller organisation as well. So working cross-functionally is a little bit labyrinthine and, you know, it's easier to get things done in a smaller organisation. So you can, you can be a bit a bit more nimble. But I think a lot of the reason for our excess really goes down to this obsession with really getting to know the audience and, and really 
sort of you know cherishing them so you can really understand what they want and then you give them what they want so it's not really rocket science at that point if you, if you know the audience and you know we've got a niche audience obviously people who are into um into tanks you know they're quite easily defined aren't they it's, is it a tank yes i like it is it not a tank no ooh, don't like that <laughs> um so we you know we don't talk about sharks or fish or, or anything like that but the other thing i think that's made us successful is we you know throughout the course of this journey because we didn't set out to achieve everything all in one go we didn't realize we were doing it at the time sure but we've got these really strong uh, and consistent online brand values so I've always thought that the content we produce, anything we put on social media, it has to be useful. It's got to give the audience, um, you know, something interesting, something they actually want. It's got to satisfy a need. And we give them, hopefully, interesting stories and, you know, and, and engaging facts. And, 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 you know, you've got to lay off on the on the sales on, on your social media, really, haven't you? You know, it's a, it's a long game. You've got to earn the right to sell to people by giving them lots of useful sort of free stuff. I think it's really important that organizations on social media are, are authentic to their own sort of organizational voice and not trying to be something else, not trying to, you know, follow what other people are doing necessarily. You've got to kind of cut your own path. I think, you know, being original is really important. There's no point trying to imitate what others are doing. It's not, I don't think um, it would be seemly for the Tank Museum to be trying to sort of imitate, you know, other online influences with the, the kind of things that they do, because that's not us. You know, we're, we're the Tank Museum. We're, we're trying to be serious content creators and we've got a serious message. Um, I think simplicity is important. And I mean, simplicity in terms of, you know, sustainability to create, because, you know, we're not a massive team, but we have this requirement now to put a video out on YouTube every week. And actually that can be quite labor intensive so you need to make sure that you're not trying to achieve more than you actually can and of course the content needs to be good simple and you know what i mean by that really is easy for the audience to consume those would be my tips really gosh there's there's, there's quite a few there there's, there's a lot there i don't even know i don't, <laughs> I don't even know how this has happened <laughs> i've no idea what happened um they're really good tips though and if i'm honest so they're tips that i took away so i, I have heard you talk about this a couple mm. of times danik and I, I've taken those tips away and I and I've implemented them or I've tried to implement them for rubber cheese ourselves so I think that there were a few things that we were already doing but I think you know just coming back to those every time the the be you know useful that you know everything that you push out has to be useful is yeah. so so vital and that's the one takeaway that I took from from your talk is that you know if you are trying to, anything that you're trying to do on social media whether you're trying to grow your audience or grow your presence or your brand or sell something but not mm. in a salesy way yeah. it's just about being useful like what what yeah. can we do that's that what do we know that would really be helpful for our audience just share that stuff you know and that's that for me is the the biggest takeaway from the things that you do is, mm. is about being useful absolutely yeah and it's sure it's not useful to anybody is it but we're not after anybody we're in online you know, we're particularly after that niche audience of, you know, enthusiasts. But because it's online, there's lots and lots and lots of them scattered all around the world. You know, the Tank Museum itself, and this is one of the really key things that, that, that I've really kind of really grasped. And it's difficult to get other people to understand is that the online audience, particularly for the Tank Museum, is totally different to the on-site audience and that's how i want it to be so the on-site audience is all about being you know accessible to the widest possible you know group of people who are in dorset and able to visit you know we want families to visit we want older people to visit we want younger people visit we want schools to visit but online we're just going for those sort of 
military history aficionados. And you can see that, if you like, in, in the actual demographics of the audience. So I think, like, on site, our gender split is 60% men and 40% female, which actually I think, you know, we need to do better on, if I'm being honest. That's but, not bad, though. I wouldn't have said that was too bad for for for. For what yeah. seems quite stereotypically male, if absolutely, yeah, and it has got it has got better. But the, the reality is actually for me is actually the subject matter of the tank museum really is particularly the way it is presented in recent times because we've completely redone the entire museum. You know, there is there is no reason why anybody could come to the tank museum. There was nothing in here for me, you know, because we just tell really good, fascinating stories. Really, so you don't have to be someone who cares a great deal about tanks to get something out of the tank museum. But you do have to be someone who cares about tanks to get something about online content, and that's the way you want it. So online, our audience is 90% male, maybe more, probably more, if I'm being honest. And it's also very, very international. You know, we probably struggle to get 10 12% international visitors um, onto the Tank Museum site. It goes up during our special events, but not by much, probably to 20%. And we know that our online audience is probably 20 25% UK. The biggest single segment would be um, North America. So that's USA and Canada. Mm-hmm. And what's left is everywhere else. And we've got Europeans, Australians, South Americans. It's a very global audience. And that's the thing with niche audiences. A niche audience in, in, in the UK is not so small when you take it to a global scale. And that's why this strategy is, is able to succeed at scale financially. It all comes back to what you said right at the beginning know your audience know your audience absolutely brilliant advice and care about them yeah not just know care exactly um okay what is next for the tank museum what can you share with us that's coming up uh, mm-hmm. what other ideas have you got in the tank ah, i like it i like it you're welcome uh, so well i think you know for, for us the biggest thing is you know we have to focus on covid recovery um, you know, last year wasn't horrendous, but we know that there are further headwinds. We know that there's a bit of an economic uncertainty at the moment. We're not quite sure how that's going to affect us on the door. You know, we we are very heavily dependent on the Tank Museum site, at least, uh, on the vagaries of sort of UK domestic tourism. So there is a bit of wait and see. Um, this year we'll see the first normal um tank fest since 2019 you know because we've had to reduce the numbers or we've had to operate it in a very very different way and that event is so very important for us but i think um on the online side i think you know there's still so much that you know i'd love to do if only there was the time and, and the resource to do it um you know we want to get better at doing this stuff we want to get better at the community development side of things i think that's obviously you know going to be the future and i mean that in its broadest sense from starting with growing the amount of emails that uh, you know engaged email subscribers that we have and kind of you know nudging them up that fabled ladder of uh, ladder of loyalty we want to increase the output of our content so um, one of the big things that we did last year was launch a tiktok channel because TikTok is where the younger people are and, you know, you've got to think about the future in terms of um, getting your brand in front of the younger audience because just because they're young and they're on TikTok doesn't mean that among that will be people who are interested in military history. It's not all about sort of funny dances and twerking, although that's a good part, I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you're, if you're on TikTok, check out Fan the Tank Man, who is our 
in-house TikToker. He did really well last year. He only launched the channel in like late April and he's accumulated 271,000 followers and 51 million views last year, which I think is pretty impressive. He's doing really, really well. That is phenomenal. I'm not on TikTok. Because mm. it's it's another thing that I've got to learn and understand I know, I know, and, a, and, a, and to find time for. So I'm not on it yet. I need to be. I do need <laughs> to understand it. But that is a really big achievement in such a short space of time. Yeah, absolutely. And it shows that there's there's there is an appetite for mm-hmm. you know serious military history content. And of course, we change if you like the tone of voice that we're using, and we change the conventions that we're using in the kind of presentational sense. But the messages are still the same. The stories are still the same. Do you know what I mean? So there's there's still that consistency of um, authority and kind of our authenticity coming out through TikTok, even though it's a very different approach and a very different audience to our YouTube channel, which is, you know, 45 plus, I suppose, its biggest continuum. With TikTok, we know that the biggest audience is 18 to 25. So it's really important, isn't it, to find a different avenue and a different way of communicating with different generations. I mean, that's basic marketing, isn't it, really? But the other thing we really want to do, and I really hope we get to do it this year, is launch a second YouTube channel. Um, and the reason we want to do that, again, is part of this um, audience diversification piece. You know, we've done really well targeting that really hardcore of um, sort of armoured warfare history enthusiasts. But we want to go a little bit broader than that. You know, we, we want to sort of almost use a second YouTube channel as like a funnel to the, the main one, if you like, by telling more broader stories stories about people and events whereas our current main youtube channel is very much focused on sort of objects and and things and stuff if you know what i mean so why why set up the second one out of interest would you do you feel like you would dilute the first one if you put those kind of stories on there yeah i think it's it's about when you because we've got some four hundred seventy-seven thousand subscribers on our on our youtube channel at the moment and so since the channel has launched, particularly in the last sort of seven years, we've really given them a very strict diet of, um, you know, very strict kind of very in-depth, tanky information. So that's that audience. That's what that audience likes. It really is that kind of um, sort of, you know, um, granularity they like. And they do prefer, generally speaking, um, those stories about the stuff, like the objects. It's okay. more kind of in perhaps more engineering, more development, less about human history, perhaps at times. We go there, but not, not very much. This is mainly about the kind of the machines and the and the objects really. So with this second channel, we are looking to tell more interesting stories about what happened when. And the artifacts are obviously a big part of that, but this is more about the human story side. Yeah, things, and that's the kind of stuff. Generally. That's the kind of stuff that would appeal more to me than the than the real kind of specifics. So again, it's looking at broadening that audience online. To yeah, gotcha, brilliant, great advice, great achievements. I, I just, I'm so glad that you've been able to come on and share this with us today. Thank you. No, thank you very much for having me. It's always, uh, it's always great to uh, you know get out of the tank museum and have a chat with people. <laughs> well, before you go. Uh, we mm. always ask our listeners if they've got a book that they love that they'd like to share. So I had a look at what your other guests had recommended. I thought, oh, goodness me, there's lots of really worthy choices in there. And I'm not really one of those people who particularly enjoys reading those like management strategy books. I was like, in my own free time, I want to read for fun. And obviously a bit of a nerd of military history. And there's interestingly a bit of an overlap, I suppose you could say, between sort of like military and marketing. You know, we use a lot of the same terminology like strategy and tactics and deployment and cut through and all of that sort of thing. So 
I'm going to recommend a book which kind of overlaps a little bit with a professional with the, the military history. Okay. Um, and that book is it's quite an old book, actually. It's called How More on Leadership, Winning When Outgunned and Outmanned. And basically, Hal Moore was an officer in the U.S. Army. He's died a few years ago, I think. But I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. It's a Mel Gibson movie. It came out in 2002 called We Were Soldiers. Have you ever come across that one? Okay, okay it's, it's, it's quite a good film. But basically, it's a Vietnam War movie. And basically, the, the star was this Hal Moore guy. It was, it was a biopic. And it was about the first major engagement in the Vietnam War between the U.S. Army and the North Vietnamese Army. And basically, his unit, 400 um, blokes, were dropped in the jungle by helicopter. Um, they quickly found themselves surrounded by like 4,000 North Vietnamese soldiers. And they found themselves cut off and basically having to fight off the determined and repeated attacks. And basically, Helmore keeps his unit together through this tremendous um series of you know challenges and so it's that book is all about his perspective on leadership and what he learned during his military career and actually i've worked with several ex-soldiers and actually what you learn from from soldiers is that you know the military is one thing that they're really good at and they're very good at many things is is training leadership if you know what i mean and, and training people how to be a good leader and i don't think that's something that the civilian world and the business world is actually very very good in but what's interesting as well that I've learned from these former soldiers that I've worked with is you, you get a completely different perspective from them, particularly those who have seen, you know, a sort of action or any form of operational um, deployment on, on things like resilience and what tenacity is and what courage is. And even, you know, what stress is and what a bad day in the office is like. Because, of course, a bad day in the office at the tank museum is nothing like uh, a bad day in the office on, on a front line somewhere unpleasant in the world. So that perspective, I think, is really um, useful. But Halmore comes up with these four kind of uh, principles of leadership, which is, is the theme of the book. Um, the first one is something like the battle only stops when you stop fighting, which basically means don't give up. You know, it doesn't matter what you're facing. You've got to keep going a bit like Winston Churchill said, you know, when you keep when you're going through hell, keep going. And the second one was um, that, you know, when you're in a tight spot, there's always one more thing you can do to influence the situation positively in your favor. And that's about being proactive. Right. Because when you're in a tough spot, the worst thing you can do is nothing is freeze. You've got to be proactive and you've got to keep going. And the third thing was, if there's nothing wrong, there's something wrong. So basically what that means is, you know, don't be complacent. Keep your guard up, be alert. And I think, you know, there are times when you're running, you know, marketing campaigns when you can, you know, you almost think, well, everything's going all right. But actually, you know, that's probably when you need to check in on things the most. And the last one was to trust your instincts. But basically he argues that, you know, you're well-trained, you've got plenty of experience, and so is your gut, you know, so you should listen to it. And the other thing, of course, is your subconscious is much more observant than you will ever be. So, yeah, so never be, I mean, as marketers, we're very analytical, we like to look at our data and that kind of thing, but your gut can tell you if you're interpreting that data correctly or if you need to look at it again. Gosh, what a book. Wow. I've never heard of that book. That's pretty old. Never been one that's been recommended before as well. So that's a great one. As ever, if you would like to win a copy of Nick's book, if you head over to our Twitter account and retweet this episode announcement with the words, I want Nick's book, then you'll be in with a chance of winning it. Uh, maybe you'll come back on in a year from now and tell us how 2023 went and how the first <laughs> tank fest since pre-pandemic went. 
Yeah, I'd be delighted if my hair has gone completely grey by that point. You'll know it wasn't it wasn't a great year. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be a good year. Thanks ever so much for coming on, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.